afternoon, and it's another beautiful day in the Pacific Northwest, and I am coming to you live from beautiful downtown Eugene because I just walked out of a Homes for Good board meeting and straight into my office to do the show. Uh, barely made it on time here. Uh, thank you, Robin, for being ready for me to come in last minute. And this is the Bose Nose Show, and I'm your host, West Lane County Commissioner Jay Bozovich. And like I said, we're coming to you live from beautiful downtown Eugene today. And, you know, I'm kind of glad we are coming from downtown Eugene because I want to talk about downtown Seattle a little bit today in the show. I got a chance to watch a one-hour, no-commercials documentary that KOMO or COMO Seattle did on homelessness and the city of Seattle. And they titled their documentary, Seattle is dying. And I just, it was a powerful documentary, a well done documentary. If they don't end up with whatever the equipment, you know, the, the TV equivalent of the Pulitzer Prize for reporting is, I think it's an Emmy of some kind for news. Um, then there's no justice in that, in that system because what a great documentary it was. And, you know, I, I, you know, would encourage everybody just if you Google Seattle is dying, it's worth an hour of your time to watch it because it presents the problem in a very fair and even handed manner, identifies some of the ways we're making it worse, possibly. But then in the end, it comes up with some solutions and talks about one possible solution. So it's not purely a, a bash the homeless or bash city officials or bash this person or that person or society, it really presents why are these people there, you know, and what's causing them to be there, and then some idea about maybe how to fix it. And I think Robin, my call screener and producer extraordinaire, has, you know, gotten a clip set for us um, that we can play here on the Bose Nose Show it's, you know, the less than one minute that we're allowed to do according to copyright as long as we identify everything properly. And if, Robin, whenever you're ready, you want to play that clip. If you're watching Facebook Live, you'll actually see the video. If you're just listening to me over blog talk, you're only going to hear the audio on it. But, uh, Robin, if you want to go with that clip. And is it playing? All right, Jake, it's done. Yeah. 
Are we done? Okay. So to the magic of blog talk, I couldn't hear it. You probably could. And Facebook, you could probably see it, but your host could not see it or hear it. So I don't know how long it went or what part of the uh, one hour documentary Robin pulled to, to have a clip of. Uh, yeah, what, just give me a quick hint, Robin. I, 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 it, it was it was basically the uh, 60 second intro to the video itself. Ah, good, good. Yeah, um, and it, and it's I, I I can't recommend more if you if you have some concerns about homelessness, whether you're concerned that there's too much of it and we're drawing people in and all that good you know regular stuff, or if you're one of the folks that's really concerned about uh, those people that are homeless and their health and safety, whatever side of the issue you're on, watch this documentary because what what it does really well is through interviewing homeless people directly and, and kind of going back and forth between talking with them and then some footage from actual um, chest cams of police interacting with some of these folks when they're not doing so well, um, it, it gives a really interesting you know, and, and uh, clear picture of you know, who these people are somewhat and a lot of why they're on the street. And, you know, even one of the homeless people was quoted as saying, you know, it's drugs, that, that, that almost everyone out there has an addiction issue of one kind or the other. Alcohol, meth, opioids, you know, even marijuana, um, which some people might not think is addictive, but in strong enough and frequent enough use can be, um, that addiction is really one of the major driving forces behind homelessness. And uh, one of the things we're doing, though, is in a sense of being, um, you know, nicer to these people and, and trying not to criminalize them, we're relaxing um, behavioral standards where we're not issuing tickets for um, urinating in public. Um, we're not you know, we're kind of just sending people on their way when they're making public disturbances and all that. Um, and after the Ninth Circuit Court decision, we can't even trespass people that are that are sleeping in public places, um, even if they're blocking sidewalks almost entirely with their campsites. Um, it, it's really a, a you know a difficult situation, and what the the documentary points out is this is a trend that's continuing to go in this direction and in the cities where it's been going that direction the fastest and Seattle's probably second only to San Francisco in going that direction of basically uh, legitimizing the behaviors that are sprout out of being addicted and homeless um, that actually allowing these people to run rampant. I mean, they interview one gentleman that talks about how he's like the king of the world now because he's untouchable. And he admitted to, you know, being a methamphetamine addict, talk about how wonderful meth is. It's a great thing. He loves meth, you know. It's like, oh, my gosh. Um, and then they show the same guy um, in a different situation where it was taking about six or seven policemen to try and calm this guy down and get him under control as he's, 
stripping clothes off, and then he gets inside of a public trash can and is throwing trash out at the police and spitting at them as they're trying to to try and get him, you know, somewhere, you know, that that's a little bit healthier for him, seeing he was nearly naked in Seattle in the wintertime. Um, it's it just, um, you know, same gentleman, you know, in two different situations. Um, and it was interesting to listen to the frustrations of the police. They did, they did an anonymous um, poll, basically, that was sort of open-ended with police forces about the situation. And, you know, after, you know, they're reading a lot of these comments, the policemen, you know, police officers and law enforcement were writing about the situation and about how, you know, it, we're just going the wrong direction and how bad it is and how it's, you know, impacting the livability of, of Seattle and the viability of businesses. And at one point, the narrator stops and says, you know, we, you know, we read you good comments, except for we didn't get any. You know, which is, which was telling in itself that there was such negativity uh, being generated by law enforcement about their inability to deal with the situation and the fact that they feel like their hands are being tied tighter and tighter in how they can deal with these problem people that are causing you know severe problems. In addition to that, they put up some statistics about property crime where, you know, by a large margin. San Francisco's number one in the country was Seattle, you know, number two in property crime rates uh, that ties to this whole issue of being permissive in homelessness. Um, so it was very interesting, in fact, they interviewed one police officer that actually quit the force after being given conflicting um, orders from superiors, one that asked him to move a uh, a uh, a broken down RV and have it towed that somebody was living in and dumping trash and sewage out of on a regular basis. And another superior that countermanded that order and told him to leave it alone. And he just, at that point in his career, uh, you know, nearly 30 years, he just decided it was time for him to hang up his, his shield and uh, retire because he just couldn't take it anymore. Um, so that sort of frustration on the law enforcement side, they interviewed multiple business owners in the, in the Seattle downtown area, and a couple that have actually moved and are now prospering in other communities because they got away from that issue of, of uh, the, the homeless issues and all that. So it really clearly kind of identified just how toxic this cycle of being more permissive and what and how it's not really helping the homeless back and forth back and forth you know we, we you know, it's not helping the homeless get off the streets we're constantly generating more homeless on a regular basis our local report here in lane county identified the fact that we have about 130 people that become homeless every month in this county so if we're not helping them get off the streets in some way we're just going to keep growing that population and Cities like San Francisco and Seattle that have become more and more permissive of homeless behaviors um, in public and, and, and the, the 
minor criminal behaviors, the misdemeanor sort of behaviors where they're starting to make these misdemeanors uh, non-offenses. And in fact, where legislators are making what used to be felonies now misdemeanors um, or less, and, and the misdemeanors aren't even being charged, um, is also creating a problem. And it's just this vicious cycle of, you know, the, the permissiveness is generating a greater population because they're not getting out of the homeless situation while it's continuing to grow, which is making some of these cities get even more permissive because they don't want to punish people for the fact they don't have a roof over their heads. Um, when in fact, holding those folks accountable is what they need. And that's sort of the conclusion of the documentary. And as you get towards the end of the last 20 minutes of the documentary, they start getting into solutions. And they go all the way across country to Providence, Rhode Island, to look at a program they have where they're actually taking some of their homeless people and holding them accountable for some of these uh, quality of life and, and um, minor drug charges and forcing them into medically assisted treatment, which is a really effective way of treating opioid addiction. Unfortunately, there is not a, a, a drug you can take to replace methamphetamine yet. Uh, there are three different drugs you can replace heroin and other opioids with um, that are, are available, and they give the, the the folks in the program a choice of which one they want to use, whether it's um, methadone, which is you know the one everybody knows about, and there's two others, Suboxone, and uh, I think it's uh, Vivitrol, but I'm not quite sure if I've got the correct name on the third drug. Um, but these are drugs that you basically have to take once a day for the rest of your life, just like you, uh, if you were a type one diabetic from birth where you're taking insulin every day to stay alive. Um, and it becomes part of your life having to take this substitute drug. And that program, they interviewed people that had gone through it, formerly homeless people. And they talk about how that saved their life and completely changed their life that they you know they weren't going to go into treatment they were fine being on the street and being addicted because that's all they knew it was the only drive they had they were stealing they were doing whatever it took to support their their habit and they didn't care where they lived because they lived for the drug so these permissive systems that allow those people to stay out there addicted is actually not, you know, helping these folks. It's not being compassionate. You're actually dispassionate because you're allowing that people to keep living in a situation no one would want to. Some of the videos of the camps they show are just horrid living conditions. And the fact that we're accepting that in our society um, and not trying to force change on people that are not motivated to make change. If they're to the point where they're living in a tent surrounded by garbage, you know, exposed to the elements, and still all they don't care about is getting enough money for that daily fix of whatever drug they're addicted to, they're not 
going to voluntarily move into a, a treatment program very well. And what they focused on was this Rhode Island system of, well, let's hold people accountable. Let's be a little bit more dispassionate of their, of their uh, disturbing the peace of a city and use that accountability to get them treatment and have a more permanent fix, turn these people around. And ultimately, how compassionate is that? And they, they ought not only provide this medically-assisted treatment, it's also tied to um, case management and counseling that go, you know, goes along upon, you know, after release, which they talk quite a bit about how important post-release is from the, the, the I would basically say, incarcerated residential treatment that they went, went through where they didn't really have a choice. Um, and, and that it speaks a lot to, you know, the need for, you know, that transition housing, which gets me to what are we doing here in Lane County? Before I get there, I want to give folks a chance to call me at 646-721-9887 and just press one. That lets Robin, my call screener and producer extraordinaire and maker of video clips, know you want to get in on the conversation. Again, that's 646-721-9887. Just press 1 to get in on the conversation here on the Bose Nose Show. Because I want to know if you saw Seattle is dying, what you thought about it, and did it change your view at all? You know, one of the interesting things is, you know, I've kind of been starting to lean towards some of this decriminalization of homelessness because I've, 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 I understand we don't have the capacity to house everyone. Uh, we just don't have that resource. So what do you do about people that are unhoused? And, you know, are they, you know, that's why the Ninth Circuit Court in that Boise case found the city of Boise to have violated people's rights by arresting them for being doing nothing more than sleeping in a public space. Um, you know, and that's kind of, you know, at that point, if they're just sleeping, I kind of agree with it. But I think we need to start looking at some of these um, behavioral crimes and try and use that stick of enforcing some of that to drive people into treatment programs. And we actually are doing some of that here in Lane County. In fact, they didn't have to go all the way to Rhode Island to see the use of medically assisted treatment. We're doing that here in Lane County. We're doing it as part of our specialty court programs. And specialty courts here in Oregon are, you know, things that you hear by different names. Veterans court, treatment court, drug court, mental health court, they all involve the same thing. You divert somebody from a prison sentence, and this is kind of key because you only go into prison if you're charged with a felony in the the circuit court system because you can't really divert people from from misdemeanors because the misdemeanors usually get handled by uh, municipal court, and actually fairly few misdemeanors are charged up through circuit court because of our lack of ability uh, to police unincorporated Lane County, but that's a whole other story. But once you have somebody charged with this felony that usually is drug-related, 
you know, multiple property crimes for feeding a habit. You know the person's addicted. You know they tested, you know, positive when they're when they're uh, intaked into the jail and they had to go through a drying out in the jail and all that stuff. Um, you take those people, you know, you, you offer them an opportunity. You basically say you have a choice of, you know, we'll take you to court, try you, convict you, and you go to jail, you go to prison for, you know, a number of years. Or you can sign an agreement with a court saying that you are going to get into this mandatory treatment program and, and with opioids, it's medically assisted treatment through our, our, our drug court and our, our veterans court. And at the same time, you're also going to participate in counseling. You're going to report to uh, a um, probation officer because this is pre, you know, basically um, in lieu of incarceration. It's not parole. You're going to, uh, you know, report to a PO, you know, and you're going to do all these various things and, and, meet certain deadlines and, you know, eventually, um, you know, in some cases it includes completing a GED. In other cases, it includes getting employment, getting stable housing, all various things. During that time, we may actually provide services to those people. They may actually end up living in, in housing provided by Sponsors, Inc., uh, which does a lot of housing for folks involved in the criminal justice system, either in this case, that possibly going in or folks coming out of prison. Um, and it, that stick of going to prison is what gets them into treatment. So if we're not enforcing drug laws, we, we're losing that stick. And one of the things we're having is we, we had a dearth of people entering the program for a little while because our legislators in one of their, quote, compassionate moves, passed a bill, it was last session of the session before, I think it might have been last session, that decriminalized possessions of what they call personal amounts of various drugs like heroin, methamphetamine, you know, you name it. Um, and basically um, some of these amounts were enough for 10 doses. <laughs> so it's, you know, small-time dealer amounts actually when you get right down to it. Um, but it made those misdemeanor possessions instead of felony possession, which means it's a lot harder for us to get some of these street addicts on a high enough felony to force them through drug drug treatment court. And we have to find, you know, different places like the property crime issue to force them in there. So they actually, you know, took away one of our, our Abilities to have a stick because these folks aren't going to voluntarily walk into a treatment. It's a rare thing. Happens sometimes. I, I, I don't want to overgeneralize. I have a friend that beat an opioid addiction that had been homeless without having so much to, to, to go through treatment court. She did get arrested though um, and, you know, for breaking into her partner's garage and stealing her partner's tools and selling them to support her habit. Um, but her partner dropped the charges based on her going into treatment. So even then there was a stick. But still, you know, it wasn't quite, you know, holding a felony in prison over their head. 
So it's really um, seeing that Seattle is dying, how many of the people that were arrested said it saved their lives. That that arrest was what saved their lives. Because how many of these folks end up dying? Dying of an overdose, you know, because they got a stronger uh, street drug than they thought it was. You know, a lot of these folks sometimes die of an overdose as they come out of incarceration. They go into jail maybe on a misdemeanor charge, you know, get away from the drug for a week or two, and then come back out on the street and their, their tolerance is down, but they inject themselves with the same amount. And that's, you know, one of the great issues about, you know, that's why it's so important to keep track of these people and keep them involved in a program post-release is there's such a danger post-release to these folks of, of overdose. But, you know, it's saving lives. That program in Rhode Island saving lives. Challenge anybody to contact our circuit court and ask for the treatment court or the specialty court program coordinator, get, find a date of one of our specialty court graduation days and go and sit in the audience during one of those graduations and listen to family members stand up and talk about what, how that, that program saved their family member's life, how they got their father back, how they got their son back, how they got their sibling back, you know, husband, wife, you know, at, at some point those folks were basically dead to them, living on the street on drugs, used up every favor from every relative they ever had, you know, have been dispossessed, whatever it is, that's why they're on the streets, because they, you know, just would not stick with getting help for an addiction. But you listen to that, those folks graduating out of those programs, and they talk about getting their family member back and how that program saved that person's life. If not for getting arrested and being forced into treatment, they would be dead. You hear that over and over again. So I got ask again, where is the compassion in, in making it easier and not enforcing all these various laws that just help make our society orderly. You shouldn't be able to, to you know, block a, a business's doorway with a tent because you're sleeping on a public sidewalk. You shouldn't be able to, you know, do your business in public. You know, it just, it, you know, you shouldn't be able to possess illegal drugs, you know, even if it's for personal use, you know, setting up, you know, safe injection sites may not be the best thing for these folks. What we really need to do is, you know, help them, you know, help them help themselves because they won't help themselves. And yes, this gets into a little bit of a civil liberty issue in some ways. You know, is there a right for somebody that wants to be addicted to be addicted, you know, Darn it, I don't care. I want to be addicted and you can't stop me. Problem is, is you're you're impacting more than just you. 
once you're living on the streets, you know, and you've lost the roof over your head and have, you know, for various reasons have gotten kicked out of housing, um, probably because of behavioral issues that are part of your um, addiction. And quite often the addiction is part of treating an underlying mental health issue. You know, you're now impacting the rest of us. You cannot be homeless and not have an impact on society as a whole and other people. Because by the very definition of living in public space, you're impacting the rest of society. So at that point, do you have a personal choice to do that? Is there, free, is there something, is there a constitutional right to, uh, you know, despoil public property? You know, we, we would arrest somebody for vandalizing a, um, a mailbox. In fact, that's a federal offense because that mailbox is actually, once it's put up, is owned by the federal government. And we, we arrest people that vandalize mailboxes. We would arrest people for um, stripping wire out of a streetlight, you know, to sell. So why don't we arrest people for, you know, leaving feces on sidewalk in a, in a downtown area? I mean, it's a health hazard. It's you know, unsanitary, you had to expose yourself to do it, you know, there's all sorts of issues about it. Why is that okay? And and in Seattle, they're letting it be okay. Concept of that, that documentary, Seattle is dying. The compassion is in actually enforcing some of those behavior crimes and making these people get into treatment then we need the capacity to deal with those folks, which gets us into some other things that Lane County does to help these folks out, which is we're trying to start really providing a housing first model of case management treatment where we, we don't worry about whether somebody's sober first. We want to get them into treatment and they get into the housing by agreeing to, to the case management um, and get them off the street. You know, it saves, you know, we've proven in some pilot programs called FUSE, which are, was our frequent user system engagement program, that it saves tens of thousands of dollars a year to house somebody that's homeless versus leaving them on the street, which is part of that. Is, it, is, it, is there a constitutional right to being on the street? Well, if you're costing society thirty-five dollars to $65,000 a year in emergency services, now, I don't think there's quite a right to doing that. You're using other people's tax dollars, which have been taken from them, you know, by force of government. So you're taking people's, what was private property and been made public and then utilizing that funds to pay for your emergency room uh, admittance, your, you know, booking into the jail, you know, the the EMS call outs when, when you know, you, you've uh, overdosed. It, it's it's somebody's private money at one point that you're utilizing. So it's not affecting just you. 
but that gets to, you know, uh, starting to get to some of the other things we're doing here. So, you know, I just came out of the Homes for Good board meeting, and some of the things we're looking at is this MLK Commons building. It's going to have 51 apartment units. It's going to specifically target this homeless addicted population and pull them in, get them into treatment and case management, and hopefully move them on. You know, some of these people may not be able to move past being in some kind of permanent supported housing for the rest of their lives. Because some of these folks that are on the street not only have mental health issues underlying, some of them, you know, are even um, have a mental disability. And they just slip through the cracks of our system as an adult. You know, there's a lot of help for disabled children mentally disabled children, sometimes as they age out through the foster system and whatever else, they slip through the cracks and end up on the streets. Those folks may never leave supportive housing. But the intent is to eventually move these folks back into society. And we do that through a lot of different programs. And you know, one of the interesting programs we have here in Lane County and it's a model to the rest of the nation is our sponsors, Inc. folks that we partner with through um, a lot of our Community Corrections Act funding and Justice Reinvestment Grant program funding to take people that are moving out of prison, and a lot of them were formerly addicted, and give them stable housing as they transition out of prison. Because one of the things that happens to folks in prison is they'll come out with no support system because they kind of blew up their support system before they went into prison. They don't have the ability to get a job easily. They don't have, a, you know, may not even have the skills, and they don't have housing. They end up on the street. What do they end up doing? They end up back into addiction, reoffend, and back to prison they go, you know, because they violate the conditions of their parole. That's not very useful because it costs a lot of money to keep somebody in prison. So what we really need is a way we transition them out of prison where it leads to their success. And our, our work with sponsors and this post-prison housing and counseling that they do and mentorship program they have really has shown an amazing success rate. And that's just one of the things we're doing in Lane County. It's you know, trying to turn off the, the, the people coming into homelessness. You know, like I said, right now we're estimating about 130 people a month in Lane County become homeless. So we, we need to turn that dial down. You know, if less people are coming into homelessness, that's going to be important. You know, then once they're homeless, we need to deal with that. And that's part of that, you know, those specialty courts and treatment courts and that medically assisted treatment that's a part of getting them out of the homeless cycle and back in the society. But I just want to, you know, touch on, you know, I mentioned Community Corrections Act and Justice Reinvestment Grant programs that help fund some of these programs. The Community Corrections Act is uh, something that the Oregon legislature funds that funds all of the parole and probation functions across our state. That's, quote, community corrections, which is basically, um, you know, folks that have been released from prison or folks that have been sentenced to less than a year of prison. Um, that are in our jails and folks that are on probation, you know, instead of being sentenced, um, all those folks under supervision. That 
set of funding forms a real basis for our parole and probation office, as well as it funds jail beds for sanctions. So it's also a critical piece of funding for our jail and the sheriff. At the same time, it's also a critical piece of funding for pieces of a lot of different programs, like Sponsors, Inc. program, um, some specialty work we're doing that's uh, gender-specific because females have completely different um, reasons for committing crimes than, than men do. And it has, and, and recovery um, and reintegration for women is much different because most of them have been actual victims of crimes as well as committing crimes. So there's a whole different set of things we need to do for women, different from men, and that community corrections funding helps fund those, those positions that are gender-specific. Um, and then there's, you know, we have this Justice Reinvestment Grant Program, which is not as big as the community corrections funding, but it's an integral piece because it's actually the piece that's only eligible for trying to divert people from prison or from preventing people from getting going back to prison. So it's really about our diversion and recidivism programs, and that really is critical to treatment court and these various um, uh, addiction treatment programs that funds a lot of that in Lane County. And I, I bring these up because it's also, you know, combined with Lane County general funding of, of um, all of these various public safety programs, and it, it involves municipal funding that goes into their portions of some of these programs, and it also goes into state funding for our court system because I mentioned treatment court. Well, where does treatment court happen but in our courthouse? And our courtrooms right now aren't all set up for the size and needs of, of running a treatment court because you usually have a lot of people in the courtroom at once when you're running treatment court. Case managers, pro, probation officers, attorneys for the, for the per, person that's you know, undergoing the treatment because you know, they're still represented as somebody that's been charged with a crime. Um, you got the DA's office there that's cooperating in the, in the diversion. So you know, it takes a lot of room to run a treatment court. Our current courthouse really isn't doing that very well. So it's one of, the re you know, one of the reasons why I'm supporting the new courthouse is those you know, larger, flexible courtrooms. They're not all going to be 12-person jury box courtrooms. They, get, they, they have the ability to be rearranged. They will work really well for treatment courts and, and specialty courts. And that may be you know, a high usage of them in the future as we try and deal with this, you know, tapering off, hopefully, of the opioid addiction as we finally start understanding about the overprescription opioids, it's going to take a while, though, because it isn't changing fast. But I get back to the Community Corrections Act and Justice Reinvestment Grant funding. I mentioned earlier that the legislators didn't help us out when they decriminalized possession of small amounts of various illegal drugs. They're also not helping us in funding these programs. They are currently proposing a 5% cut from the governor's recommended budget, which was not sufficient in either of those two areas, as what they're going to budget. If they 
go with what they're recommending right now, we would have to cut all of these programs by a certain amount, either cut some programs entirely or cut all, give them all a haircut because it would result in less funding for Lane County coming from the state for community corrections and justice reinvestment. So tomorrow I'm scheduled to testify at the, uh, the Department of Corrections budget hearing because that's where community corrections funding is uh, embedded in, in the uh, state budget in support of expanding that community corrections funding to match up with a time study that they do once every six years um, in, in uh, Oregon to actually try and match the community corrections funding to what it really costs to supervise everybody that's under supervision. And that time study actually calls for a significant investment in community corrections well above the governor's budget, not 5% below the governor's budget. So, you know, if, even if they did the governor's budget, we would still have to make some cuts. You know, they, they have to get somewhere close to what that time study says before we'd actually be able to start increasing our ability to deal with this homelessness problem through specialty courts, medically assisted treatment, um, permanent supportive housing, um, and all of the various diversion and treatment programs that we, we've started here in Lane County, we just don't have enough of them. And they need to be tied together a little bit better with everything else we do for the homeless here in Lane County. The technical um, advisory collaboratives report or TAC report that you hear people refer to talks about the need to tie some of our programs together a little bit better way and to have more supportive housing and a, you know, a better system of moving people through the, through the through that system and in and, and out of it in the backdoor side, as well as trying to eliminate some of the into the system side. But you know, we've got the, the basics for that system here in Lane County. We're, we're doing some of that work. We just need to resource it and we need to let our state legislators know they need to fund the Community Corrections Act and Justice Reinvestment programs to the maximum extent possible so that we can do this work so Eugene won't be dying like Seattle is. Because Seattle is dying right now. Just watch the Como documentary. I'm going to take a breath here for a minute and give you a chance maybe to talk about, you know, what do you think about the homeless situation here in Lane County? Are we doing some good work with that? Are we, are we just doing the wrong things, give me a call, 646-721-9887. Just press 1, and that lets us know you want to get in on the conversation. Again, that's 646-721-9887. Just press 1, and that way we can know you're wanting to speak here on the Bose Nose Show. So, you know, as I think about some of this, one of the things that's interesting is um, – we had a lot of public testimony in our homes for good meeting today. It's why we ran long and I've had to run from one meeting right into the Bo's Nose show. And thank you, Robin, for being ready for me to come on late. And uh, one of the things we had public testimony about is the homes for good folks sold a piece of property that was surplus and not suiting the board uh, as a future development property. And it's going to take the proceeds of that sale and reinvest it in more 
affordable housing projects. But you'd be amazed at the people that want us to hold on to that property and and develop it at a lower density than the developer that purchased the, as the, as the sales agree purchase of sales agreement with Homes for Good, and it's going to build 90 market rate apartments on it. And it kind of you know when we talk about the 130 people coming into the system every month. One of the reasons they're coming in is how much housing costs in this area. And 90 units of housing is 90 units of housing more whether it's homes for good supplying it or a developer supplying it still means that um, we have more housing, more front doors, which helps keep the cost down. So it, it's kind of interesting that people were saying, you know, we're going against our mission because we're selling this piece of property when we're going to reinvest it in affordable housing projects. But being against market rate housing, I, I don't understand that. That why, what's bad about market rate housing when we're trying to turn off that incoming spigot to housing to the homeless problem, which means we need more market rate housing to keep the price down because one of the one of the drivers is that cost. Hey, Robin, I see we got a caller there. Have you checked to see if they want to get on the show, or is that you monitoring there? Uh, we got a caller listening apparently. If you would like to join the program or anybody else, uh, please press 1. That will let me know that you're doing more than just listening. Yes, and again, for people, 646-721-9887. Yes, thank you, Robin. Yes, if, if I see somebody's holding on the board there. I just want to make sure you weren't um, wanting to get in. I see the question mark come up there. So I'm going to bring you in, even though I don't know your name or anything. So you have a question or comment on, on the uh, Seattle is dying or anything else here today. Hi, am I yeah, on? I yes, you are. What's your name and, and what's, what's your uh, question or comment? Hi, I'm Rhonda Jeanette. I'm from Benita. And, mm-hmm. uh, Jay, I wanted to ask why there seems to be so many out-of-state, um, uh, for the most part, drug addicts that are in um, Eugene that I know of, but um, other cities too, in in our state. Do you have any idea, yeah. or has that been studied? Yeah, it actually has been studied to a certain extent. Um, we have a um, computerized system where anybody that that um, uses any um, services for the homeless gets entered into the system. And one of the things they ask is, you know, you know, where you're from, et cetera. And there was actually right. also a U of O study done on one of the um, rest stops where they actually interviewed everybody that was at the rest stop and, and did a, a um, kind of city of origin questionnaire. And you'd be surprised that we grow a lot of our own homeless here in Lane County. It, it, there is this perception, supposedly, that we're drawing people in, you know, and as I talked about, there's 130 people a month that become homeless in Wayne County, and there's all sorts of reasons why. Uh, Addiction is probably one of the major drivers of it, but, um, you know, even everything from domestic violence where, um, you know, a woman running from a domestic violence situation ends up living in a car with children to, um other other issues, but there are there is a certain amount of transient people. There are people that come from out of state. I, I won't disagree with that. Everyone likes to kind of bring them up as the example, 
but we're exporting homeless people too. Quite often that those 130 people become homeless here in Lane County. Some of them might go to another city where they thought they had a friend or relative that would put them up. And of course, you know, the friend or relative might put them up for a week or two and realize that person's, you know, got an addiction problem. He's been stealing from my jewelry box and selling it to feed the addiction. I'm kicking them right. out and they end up, they end up homeless in another city. <laughs> so yeah. there, there, there was, there was a large study done about, um, you know, these, these places where they'll actually bust homeless people back to their own, their, their hometown of origin. And it was right. a net zero. You know, they, they, they met, they did this huge map with arrows going back and forth between cities and numbers of people and all that. It ended up being a net zero for every town that that's doing has programs like that. That you're getting back as many people as you're busing out. So it kind okay. of so so there the perception that all these people are from other areas and that somehow or another we're drawing homeless people here is not a, a, an absolutely accurate perception. There are people from out of state. They may not have been drawn here by a program. Um, and they end up here sometimes just because of the climate in some ways. Um, we are fortunate to have a fairly mild climate, so you don't see too many homeless people in Fargo, North Dakota. <laughs> right. Um, thank they, thank, you, for, to and speak. thank yeah. you for explaining yeah. that yeah. to me. I, I, I appreciate that. Uh, may I ask another uh, uh, question? Sure, Rhonda. The, um, the, the homeless count that was done at the end of um, January, I think, I haven't seen mm -hmm. any, um, I haven't really seen that um, information come out. Where would I find it? It will come out probably about uh, the end of May or early June. That's about usually when it comes out. It has to, okay. one of the things they have to do is make sure there's no duplication of count because they use a lot of volunteers. So they do some deduplication work involved in that. And then they um, also um, have to submit it to the, the federal government to be approved before they can release it to public. And oh. if, if you know anything about working with HUD, uh, <laughs> things take time. Yeah. <laughs> so right. we're not, we're, we're not allowed to release the information until we get the approval from HUD that we're allowed to release it. So that, okay. that count will late spring, early summer. All right. I, I, now I, I missed that. It's like crime statistics that are two years behind. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, um, thank you so much. And we, do you mind repeating before you uh, go off air what um, we should ask our um um, our legislators, the governor, yeah, yeah the act. legislators to the act, yeah, yeah. legislators. Mostly, it's legislators now because they have to put the budget together. The governor will sign it once they do. But we need to ask our legislators to fund the Community Corrections Act. Uh, the Community Corrections the Act. Yeah, yeah, in accordance with the time study that was done, which would be a, a significant increase in the Community Corrections Act. The other thing we want them to fund fully, at least at, at, at level of service, which they weren't proposing, is the Justice Reinvestment Program. 
which is that as okay. it funds all those coaching programs. So community CCA and and JRGP are the two two acronyms that they 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 know as as uh, legislators. But Community Corrections Act Justice Reinvestment Grant Program. Really okay, important Justice. funding. Okay. All right. Well, I'm going to put this yes. out in my the Benita Community Network, and um, so I wanted to I wanted to get that information um, correct. But um, yeah. so the CCA and out. yeah, yeah, JRGP. Thank you so much. I really yeah. appreciate you taking my call. Yeah, tag me on the post, Rhonda, and I'll double check it. Okay. Thank you. I appreciate All right. it. Thank you. Thank you All right. For the call. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Oh, crap. Sorry, Robin. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, that's why I run the board. Sorry about that. <laughs> I forgot to run the board. Hung up on Robin's monitoring call, but you guys don't see that in the background there, but um, yeah, should not let the commissioner run technology. Step away from the button. Yep. I just wanted uh, Robin, uh, Rhonda had been holding for a little bit, so when she put the question mark up there, I wanted to jump right to her comments, and and that is something I talk to people about. Is there there is this? Oh, if we provide services, we'll just attract more. That's where we get a, if we get away from this this um, misguided compassion of not holding homeless people accountable for the behaviors driven by addiction, that doesn't attract people. They'll arrest you for misbehaving in public, and we will force you into treatment, is not something that is going to you know, get around supposedly in the homeless community and have people moving here. You know, leniency laws and and this misguided compassion towards the homeless of not holding them accountable, that may attract people. But even I would even argue that there is not a great degree of mobility in the homeless population. You know, once once these folks are living in a tent, you know, they're not very mobile. Can I jump in and with a quick comment? Sure, Rob. Well, in addition to the cost, you know, like to taxpayers, as you were mentioning earlier, one of the other bit of cost that doesn't get advertised too much is the cost to the business, uh, either directly or indirectly. And as you know, I work for a nonprofit, and with the – vandalization that we've had in the last two or three months, we've probably spent over $10,000 um, just in repairs that have been done from that. And we're not exactly a rich nonprofit. No. And, and you're serving a very vulnerable population with that nonprofit, yet you all are having to um, deal with the vandalism and theft that's resulting from homeless folks camping near that that facility that are stealing to um, drive their to feed their habits their addictions and and it's just 
that's you know it's not a taxpayer cost necessarily, although you know some of the clients that you guys serve are are you know being supported by taxpayers because it's a very you know, vulnerable population, but still it's you know here you got a nonprofit trying to provide services to the community and they're having to pay to replace items and fix fences because there's homeless people stealing you know cutting fences and stealing stuff to sell to support an addiction. And we need to get those folks, you know, chase down those crimes, find the perpetrators, charge them, and then hold them accountable and make them get into treatment. Because that's what's going to save those folks' lives. And it's a compassionate thing to do. Well, the other thing, is, I don't know if I told you, is that last week we had a vehicle broke into around 10 o'clock in the morning on our property behind our fence. Wow. Yeah, so it's becoming a safety issue as well. Yeah. Yeah, and you just you worry, you know, if they're breaking into the property and stealing stuff, is it going to start to be copper wire somewhere in some safety system that's not going to work right? You know, um, they're going to start breaking out lights to things darker so they can do the theft they want to do, and then ultimately somebody comes out on a dark morning or a dark evening in the wintertime and, and hurts themselves. You know, there's all sorts of things that, that impacts that, that petty property destruction and petty theft. And the real impact just is in how it demoralizes society in a lot of ways. You know, it, it, when you get... Property crime just keeps increasing, and it makes people it's not going to be a result. Well, we're kind of running out of time on the Bose Nose Show. I encourage everyone, Google, Seattle is dying. Watch it. Spend an hour of time learning about homelessness and a possible solution and understanding the problem in greater depth. We'll be back next week with the Bose Nose Show. I hope you learned something today about what we're doing locally for homelessness. Take a look at Seattle is dying. Hopefully it won't depress you too much because I want you to have a great week and be back here next week at 4 o'clock on Wednesday for the Bo's Nose Show where we'll come to you live from beautiful downtown Elmira next week. And have a great week. You can now take KRBN Internet News Talk Radio with you on your mobile phone as we are making it easier to listen to the great hosts here on KRBN, including our very own West Lane County Commissioner, Jay Bozovich. It's free and available on Google Play. Just look for player.fm. That's player.fm and search for KRBN. Live from Lane County, Oregon, it's the Bose Nose Show with your host, West Lane County Commissioner, Jay Bolsovich. And-